Well, thank you very much for joining us uh, for this podcast, where we'll be talking about the new economic crime, transparency and enforcement bill. And I'm joined um, this afternoon by John Malik, who's one of my associates in the crime team, and Tom Byrne, who is also part of the sanctions team. Thanks, Claire. The um, former Conservative Cabinet Minister, David Davis, has described this bill as an economic warfare bill a war that liberal democracies cannot afford to lose. He's gone on to say it's not a perfectly crafted bill and that it has been initially designed for a different purpose. But we're dealing with a difficult but sophisticated adversary and we're making decisions quickly. So that's the context in which this bill is being um, passed, a context like no other piece of financial crime legislation. The reforms that the bill um, contains in the, in the main have been under discussion for some time and have in fact repeatedly been delayed by this government, but it's now being fast-tracked in response to the invasion of Ukraine. And I think it's striking that it's in this horrific war by Russia that that's what's precipitated and galvanised the government into action. And we'll reflect at the end of the podcast on what other developments in financial crime enforcement we're likely to see as a follow-up, including a second economic crime bill. So this bill targets those who might be seeking to hide illicitly acquired wealth in the UK. And in particular, it's designed to make it easier to sanction those individuals and enforce uh, sanctions uh, against those individuals. So I'll begin with a very brief summary of what we're going to cover in the podcast. Um, we will be providing you with a high-level overview uh, of each of the three parts of the bill. Part one deals with the overseas property register, part two, uh, unexplained wealth orders, and part three, uh, sanctions reform. Uh, this podcast links up with other recent material that we have been putting out. Um, the real estate Simmons team did a podcast um, which was released uh, last week, which included a detail on part one, the Overseas uh, Properties Register. And we're also doing a series of um, sanctions webinars, which um, you can also uh, follow. So, as I said, um, the bill is being fast-tracked through Parliament, and indeed all remaining stages passed through the House of Commons yesterday in a single day unopposed, um, although there were some amendments. And it's no doubt for those reasons that David Davis has described this as a bill um, that's not perfectly crafted. But in any event, John, an economic warfare bill, do we see that objective reflected in the reforms being proposed under part one? Part one, as I say, is the introduction of a register of properties owned by overseas entities. Thanks, Camilla. Um Yes, I mean, I think we do. And I think that that, that quote from, from David Davis is, is quite apt. Um, I mean, as, as you've mentioned, our real estate team did a, a podcast last week on this, which is excellent on the detail. But um, in, in, in brief summary, um, what part one of this bill does is, or will do, is introduce a requirement for uh, overseas owners of UK properties to disclose information regarding their beneficial owners and to register them with Companies House, so they'll be public for anyone to view. And this will be backed by criminal sanctions, including fines and in some cases custodial sentences. Um, and these proposals in particular really date back 
several years, all the way back to 2016. Um, and as you said, there's been a delay for many years. They also form part of what I think is a sort of trend in the UK in requiring further transparency of, of beneficial ownership. Um, companies, for example, have been required to disclose their what are called persons of significant control um, since June 2016. Um, so these are proposals which have a, uh, a purpose and a sort of scope that goes far beyond um, current events. But now, after this many years, we're, we're really seeing, um, you know, fresh uh, impetus being given um, to bringing these uh, proposals in as quickly as possible. And that is very clearly due to events in Ukraine. Um, the government's been very clear that the aim of the uh, proposals is to discourage the use of illicit finance um, uh, in UK properties um, and also to help with um, enforcing against uh, those who seek to do so. Um, I think it's fair to say that the sort of immediate purpose of bringing these proposals in now seems to be to assist in enforcing against um, sanctioned individuals in the context of the Ukraine events. but. Of course, as I've said, there is also the sort of wider purpose of discouraging the use of illicit funds in the UK property market, which has been on the legislative and political agenda for some time. And John, how useful do you think those reforms, the reforms will be to that purpose? Um, well, I think that's an interesting question. And the idea of this not being perfect legislation is, I think, um, a good description of this. I mean, there will certainly, I think one can say without doubt, there will be some benefits to these reforms. Um, I mean, clearly the idea of having information uh, public on beneficial owners of overseas entities that own UK properties will make it harder um, for the ultimate owners of UK properties to hide behind shell companies. Um, to conceal the ultimate ownership of UK properties and ultimately to uh, to engage in, in practices which may encourage money laundering and other criminal offences. Um, I think it's also fair to say that um, there should be a benefit to, um, to enforcement. Um, so, for example, I know you'll, you'll come on to, to discuss um, unexplained wealth orders, but in terms of... Um, you know, tracing assets and, and, and finding information on ultimate beneficial owners, this sort of reform should help. Um, one uh, amendment that was, that was passed yesterday um, when this bill was debated in the Commons um, is worth noting, I think, um, in that it, it should help give these, these reforms a little bit of extra teeth. Um, there have been some concerns about the level of fine for um, contravention of the rules, which was £500 um, a day um, of, of, of contravention. Um, uh, and that had been, there have been concerns that that was really peanuts in the context of particularly sort of super prime properties that are being used um, um, in, in, in a lot of money laundering um, instances. Um, that's now being decided that, that will um, 
be a fine that will increase from £500 upwards for each continued day of contravention up to a maximum of £2,500. Um, so that's sort of the good side of the reforms. Um, there are there have been some criticisms um, that the that these reforms may have less impact than um, might otherwise be wanted. In particular, there's been some criticism um, that the, the the transitional provisions of the bill will mean that it's less effective um, as against um, individuals and entities that are being considered um, in the current and and soon to be. Uh, you know, soon upcoming rounds of sanctions. Um, so the the initial draft of the bill um, had an 18 month transitional period. So once passed, um, uh, there would be 18 months before information needed to be provided on this register. That's now, as of yesterday, being brought um, down to six months. But um, that is still quite a long time, and there are concerns um, about the possibility for asset flight during that period um labor had wanted it to be 28 days but um that wasn't ultimately voted on yesterday um there are also proposals being discussed which may um make it in before this becomes law that would um ensure that any properties that were sold during the transitional period would would require disclosure at that point so that may help um so I think, in, in in summary on that, I mean, I, I think going forwards, there's very much likely to be a benefit and there should be a benefit in discouraging um, the use of illicit finance in the UK property market. But as to whether there will be an immediate impact in terms of, you know, individuals on the, or on the sanction list now, um, that's yet to be seen. Um, Camilla, so if we turn next to um, part two of the bill dealing with unexplained uh, wealth orders, uh, maybe you could um, just tell us a little bit what, what are those reforms exactly and, and, and what do you think they're intended to achieve? Yeah, sure, John. Um, I think uh, before I do, let me, let me start with um, UWOs themselves because they've actually been around since January 2018. Uh, and they were born out of the Illicit Enrichment Task Force, which convened back in 2014. So UWOs, UWOs were designed to be used to tackle corruption and money laundering and those engaged in serious crime. And the expectation, even if not a specific policy intent, was that we would see an increase in the use of civil recovery as part of the anti-money laundering asset recovery armory. So UWOs are an investigative tool um, giving uh, law enforcement the power to confiscate criminal assets without having to prove to a criminal standard that the property um, confiscated was obtained as a result of a crime being committed. So it puts the onus on the corrupt, on those engaged in serious crime and their associates to justify and explain the ownership of those assets where it's difficult to see how they could have been legitimately acquired. And I think the purpose of these reforms is to make the use of those powers easier for law enforcement. So, I mean, from my experience, if I sort of turn back to my time at Serious Fraud Office, I know that the Serious Fraud Office did look to make use of that power 
at the right time with the right case. But it's right to say that even now in 2022, they haven't found that. Uh, in fact, um, it's only been used nine times in relation to four cases and none since 2019. So it's clear that reform is required to help the use of this um, power. So the legislation that's just passed um, is designed to make it easier for authorities to use unexplained wealth orders, or orders in that the new rules expand the ne definition of a property that can be covered in a UWO to include homes that are held in trust or owned by shell companies. And law enforcement will also get more time to make their case and they'll be protect protected against having to pay the costs if their attempts to secure a UWO fail. So I think this is all good news for law enforcement. I do think um, that the costs and potential compensation were a factor, um, but I think there are still challenges to be overcome by law enforcement to use this tool. Um, the new register that you've been talking about, John, may well help in this regard because it may well shed light on um, the ownership of assets in a way that law enforcement haven't, haven't had to, to hand to date. But in relation to each use of a UWO, there has to be a strategic operational decision made in relation to each in, in individual case as to whether a UWO is appropriate or whether there's another tool that, uh, that law enforcement can use, knowing that uh, any decision will be challenged by the respondent. And law enforcement need to have a reasonable basis to suspect the uh, proposed respondent does not have legitimate means to justify the acquisition of the asset, be it a super yacht or whatever property in, Bulga uh, in Belgravia. And of course, this is easier to do in some circumstances than others. And it's particularly difficult where an individual has legitimate wealth as well as suspect wealth. And in effect, law enforcement need to embark on an investigation to understand and get behind the explanation of the assets. And that's not always easy to do, can be very complicated to trace and understand, particularly if evidence is in jurisdictions where it's difficult um, to get hold of. So I think uh, challenges uh, do remain. Um, the government's obviously very keen to see what progress law enforcement make uh, of um, UWOs um, and there was an amendment um, which was um, passed yesterday which will commit the government to publishing an annual report on the use of UWOs uh, and um, although data on the use is already published in the annual asset recovery statistical bulletin uh, this additional report will be laid before parliament and also provide further information beyond how many UWOs have been obtained. Um, there'll also be their estimated value. So turning to the third and final part of the bill, which relates to sanctions. Um, Tom, can you talk us through, please, the, the reforms uh, that the bill um, makes in that regard? Yeah, absolutely, Camilla. I mean, I, I personally think the sanctions elements of this bill are potentially hugely significant and they absolutely reflect the the overarching thread of what we've been saying here which i think is that as much as this is a long anticipated economic crime and law enforcement bill it's also a bill that seeks effectively to engage in economic warfare and this all stems or at least the urgency around it all stems from the russian invasion of ukraine and the need to critically, um, well, the need to impose sanctions on Russia in response to that, 
but also to enforce those. And it's worth noting there that the UK has historically had a fairly weak record in sanctions enforcement and certainly um, compared to the position when you look at the United States. What the bill does set out are reforms that are likely, I think, to intensify sanctions enforcement, and that is really where at least the first and most newsworthy bit of it is targeted. So currently, OFSI, which is the UK's sanctions enforcer, can only impose civil monetary penalties on a person who breaches financial sanctions if it is satisfied that they knew or had reasonable cause to suspect that they were in breach. So effectively, you had to know or intend to commit a sanctions breach and also to in order to rather receive a civil penalty for it. What the bill does is remove that requirement and enables OFC to impose a civil monetary penalty on what is effectively a strict liability basis. So that means, to reverse what I just said, that you can commit a sanctions breach and be penalised for it regardless of your intent or knowledge as to that breach. That brings it actually much more in line with the approach that is taken to civil enforcement in the States where we know sanctions enforcement is much more active. So my view, and I think quite certainly the government's intent, is for that to underpin a considerable uptick in sanctions enforcement by OFSI on a civil basis. And I, I stress that it is a civil basis. It doesn't apply to the criminal sanctions breach regime. And that is a really important point for clients and anyone involved in the financial sector to be aware of most particularly because of the massive, frankly, uptick in the level of new sanctions being imposed, the novelty of the regime and the potential for mistakes to be made. And what this civil strict liability regime will capture is is mistakes. Um, So that's something everyone needs to be aware of. There have been some further amendments yesterday Uh, which I'll go through quickly. They are not the headline. They relate less to enforcement, but more to the political or administrative process of actually imposing sanctions in the first place, designating persons. The UK government has come, come under some criticism by comparison to the EU and the US in relation to the speed by which it's been designating persons. So the bill will remove the requirement that a designation should be appropriate, having regard to the likely significant effects of the designation on that person. Effectively, it's slightly lowering the standard that the government needs to meet before they put someone on the list. It will permit someone being considered as a subject of sanctions um, to be named and for the asset freezing provisions to apply to them, preventing them from selling or moving assets and funds out of the UK. It will permit persons to be sanctioned for 56 days based on an urgent procedure if there are no reasonable grounds to suspect that a person or entity has been involved in sanctionable conduct, and that's the test that they currently need to satisfy, but have already been subjected to similar sanctions by either the US, EU, Australia, Canada, or another specified country which can be designated, which can be put forward in secondary legislation. So that that is the bit that has really hit the news, the ability of the UK government to effectively piggyback in the short term off off its allies sanctioning sanctioning oligarchs in effect. That's what that's targeted at. Uh, And it will also require the Home Secretary to report on whether the government 
has the necessary resources to meet the increased obligations created by the bill. And I think that is a really interesting point. It goes back to some of the things Camilla was talking about uh, in relation to unexplained wealth orders. This bill is supposed to underpin a big uptick in effectively white collar crime enforcement uh, without the resources to do so. That is unlikely to arrive regardless of any changes to to the law. So this, I suppose, is intended to make the government a bit more accountable in that regard. Yeah, I agree, Tom. I think that's the um, unknown question at the moment is whether there will be budget and resource put behind this bill to, to really help enforcement um, follow through with the intentions uh, of the bill. So thank, thank you very much for that. Um, so I think in summary, um, our conclusions are that these reforms are likely to have significant impact both in the near term and going forward, primarily because we're likely to see an increased impetus for enforcement. And I think for our clients, um, it's the register of, of overseas property that John talked us through that is likely to have the most immediate practical impact. But perhaps it's the imposition of the strict liability sanctions reforms that ultimately is likely to have the most significant impact overall. Um, but the bill goes on, it goes through to the House of Lords and may be passed into law as soon as this week or potentially next. I think it's worth mentioning at this stage that there are proposals for a second economic crime bill, again, to be fast-tracked, and that this bill may be presented to Parliament as early as May. Uh, the second bill has some significant proposals in it, including the long-awaited Companies House reforms, uh, and some of the proposals uh, include requiring directors and um, persons of significant control to verify their identity with Companies House, allowing companies to have only one layer of corporate directors who must be UK-based, as well as new powers to seize crypto assets, enhanced AML powers to encourage businesses to share information on suspected economic crime, uh, along with other proposals. And I think looking sort of further down the track, it'll be interesting to see whether there is uh, a range of other economic crime reforms, those that have been on the table for some time, such as the corporate criminal liability reform and, and what that might look like. Um, if, if the context is this economic crime bill is an economic warfare bill, uh, I wonder what, what um, a, a, a corporate criminal liability reform might look like. But I think that's a little way off from today. But thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, and if you've got any queries in relation to uh, anything in relation to this um, piece of legislation, then too, please get in touch with the crime team here at Simmons. Thanks very much.